I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to Broadcast Friends. This is Theology Unplugged, coming to you from uh, the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. Hopefully one of these days you guys can stop by here and hang out with us. Had a few of you guys over the last couple months uh, drive in uh, from out of town and check out the Credo House. Yeah, we had a couple guys drive in from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just to be a part of our Tuesday night study. So if you want to make this part of your destination, we'd love to spend the day hanging out with you and uh, just be a part of the Credo House. So you're committing a full day to whoever comes here? No, well, a day is in... uh, (laughs) <laughs> about a couple hours or so. Like, they can be here the whole day, and then, you know, we can hang out here. And well, sometimes people have gotten here, and it's like, we're here from Ohio, and we've come to see you. We're just here for the day. And we're like, oh, man, we've got a lot of big plans today and all yeah. this. And it's very hard to stop everything. So warn us whenever you're coming, and yeah. we can set aside, you know, an hour or so for you to yeah. hang out. And we got have but lunch if, together. And if you guys aren't available, they can play pool. Well, I, I had the guy that stopped by. I remember one of them, they stopped by, and they said, uh, is Sam here? And I said, no. And they, oh, man, we wanted to see him. We're from such and such place. And I called Sam up. I said, Sam, somebody's here from out of town. You know? Are you close? No, I'm not. All right. See, I thought when you said, you know, if we're busy, you can play pool as opposed to, I thought you were going to say, we could send them over to you. No. They, and they could spend the day with you. we got a great pool table here. We do have a great pool table. Well, they can sit and watch TV on the flat screen. Yeah, and we've there, got. There is. There's lots of things to do here. At we've the got. House browse the library. Yeah, yeah. Sit in Heretic's Corner, have a mocha. Use the bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> There's all sorts of activities at the Creedal. Uh, uh, that's good. And uh, we are switching to all uh, vinyl with our music. We're going to do the record player thing. So if you want, every 25 minutes or so, you can flip over the records. Yeah, by the time by the time you listen to this, that may have come and gone. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> we're not switching over officially. We're thinking through the logistics of being open 85 hours a week and having records that only play for about 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be d- difficult um uh we we are covering a series that we've been going through and i think we've got a couple more broadcasts after this so we're coming to the end of our series but not the end of the difficult passages this is the ones we're choosing uh that are difficult passages in the scripture we've gone through uh genesis chapter six we cover a couple in genesis chapter six number one the the as son who are the sons of god who uh, came and intermarried with the daughters of men, and then why was God regretful? We've covered um, passages in, uh, that, that talk about uh, the unforgivable sin. Um, ones in James where it seems to conflict with Paul's doctrine. Uh, today we come to a, a unique passage in First John chapter five, uh, three. First yeah. John chapter three. Oh, that's I'm right. Looking at five. I don't know why I'm in five. Chapter we're going to refer to five, we are. Yeah, undoubtedly, and we're talking about three. But. You were a step ahead of us, bro. Yes. All right, well, we're talking about First uh, John chapter 3. I think there's a couple things in this that stand out whenever you're reading this. Probably as a new Christian or someone who's been a Christian for a while, you, you're reading through this passage, and it, and it just gives you pause. And probably, here's what I think, Sam, Tim, it gives people a bit of fear, you know, it scares mm-hmm. you. You say, wait a minute, if this is true, I'm in trouble. What does this mean? What are the implications? So, Tim, are you there to read it? Uh, actually, I'm not there. Okay. Sam, I'll read there? it. Okay. Uh, it's actually two verses. Uh, the first one is in chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then in uh, verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Can I, can I read that from an older translation? Yeah, because it's obvious, that, as we're going to see, the English Standard Version that I just read has, in a sense, uh, expanded upon yeah. uh, the original text. Uh, to and in fact, in fact, has provided an interpretation in the translation. So read yeah, it more literally. It's well T- taken um, <clears throat> from uh, a more King James tradition, older tradition. No one who abides in him sins. Pause there for just dramatic pause. Yeah, is that is that okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, no one who sins has ever seen him or knows him. Now, but to verse nine, no one who is born of God sins because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. Because he is born of God. Now, now, let me throw that into very stark contrast with earlier statements in First John. First okay. John one eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So here is First John one eight. If you say you don't have sin, you're self deceived, and the truth isn't in you. First John three six and nine. If you sin, um, you don't abide in Him. You're not born of Him. Uh, it, it, even again, uh, verse. Verse ten. If we verse ten of chapter one. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, how are these not contradictory? Yeah, it seems like John is definitely contradicting himself within a, just a few passages. Yeah. Now, now we talk about contradictions in the Bible a whole lot, and you know, from uh, from one author to another, and say, you know, that uh, there, there's a contradiction here. One of the most famous contradictions is in the Proverbs, where one the next verse contradicts the verse before it, and I think it says, "Do not answer a fool according to his folly." And then the next, or, you know, you yeah. will be made a fool or something. And then the next verse is, answer a fool according to his folly. Now, whenever I read that in the context and I say, you know, this is Proverbs, whoever's writing this wrote one right after the other, and it's a, it's a grouping of wise statements, I don't say, wow, this is a contradiction. This guy's such an idiot. I mean, <laughs> he forget that he just wrote that just now. You know that there's some type of intentionality to where you have to put those two together and say, you know, how does this meant to be seen? I mean, is it a one-hand clapping thing or something like that? But you know that there are different ways that you see each one of the verses and how they apply. Whenever you come to John here, this is within three chapters that John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Then three chapters later, everyone who sins is does not have the seed of God within him. No one who practices sin, the one who who sins is of the devil. Verse 8. This devil has sinned from the beginning. Uh, No one who is born of God sins. Now, seems like, number one, a contradiction. But number two, most importantly, an absolute contradiction in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, one of the ways of of doing this, I've actually heard people say that the statements in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 10 are a reference to immature Christians. You know, when you're immature, when you're new in the faith, uh, you're going to sin. And if you say that you have no sin, the truth isn't in you. And that First John 3 is talking about the more mature believer, the one who has uh, somehow uh, been elevated uh, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit to a higher level of living. And they have, in some sense, attained sinless perfection or 
uh, they've been holy and completely sanctified, as some Christian denominations w- would would refer to it. Uh, I don't think there's any ground for for arguing in that way, but that's the way some people have tried to reconcile the two passages. Well, and I think the Bible itself makes that a hard one to say, because if you see at the very beginning of chapter 2, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. And so he's saying, this is, it seems to be speaking to believers, the way that he's using that terminology, my little children. But then if you flip over uh, to the beginning, right before chapter 3, he says, and now little children abide in him. So that when, then he goes into chapter 3. And so, I mean, it seems like he is refreshing uh, who he is talking to as well, the object of, of, of his, his statements here and the, who the letter is to. He's saying, audience, I'm writing this to you. Same audience, I'm writing this to you as well. Sam, talk a little bit about this perfectionism. You, br- you brought it up just a moment ago, and I want to introduce our audience a little bit more to this. Uh, maybe foreign to some people, but there are people who believe in what's called Christian perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Well, there are different varieties of it, but the primary uh, idea is that though we all struggle uh, after our uh, conversion experience and, and we, we can even fall into uh, sin and backslide and have, have uh, manifold problems, that there is a point at which some sort of crisis moment, um, you know, the Keswick uh, movement uh, referred to this as uh, entering into the higher life, uh, finally yielding up fully to the lordship of Jesus in such a way that it elevates you beyond the capacity of sin. You know, John Wesley talked about entire sanctification in which there was a rooting out of the sinful, selfish motivation of the heart in such a way that the primary instinctive disposition of your soul is to love of God and love of man. Now, Wesley said, although you could attain that kind of perfection, you could lapse from it. You could fall back, and then you could attain it again. Uh, Certain wings of the Nazarene denomination still talk about what they call entire sanctification, um, and so that's the idea here that, uh, that, that, that John is in chapter 3 talking about an event, a moment, a, a, a process of growth at which you are elevated beyond the sinful nature uh, within you. In fact, one of the ways of, in, uh, of making sense of this passage, I, I've actually seen uh, individuals use this language. They say that whereas our old nature can continue to sin, that maybe what John is referring to in 1 John 3 is our new nature. The problem is, you know, how do you subdivide natures? It's always, in Scripture, it's the person who sins. It's not a nature, one nature versus another. You know, granted, we, have, we are still in the flesh, and we have sinful fleshly propensities, but it's the person who commits sin or commits righteousness, not a nature in isolation from another nature. Yeah, you couldn't say, I didn't shoot this person, my right hand did, mm-hmm. and uh, my right hand is, is not all of me, and so, you know, mm-hmm. my right hand is guilty, but I'm innocent. Yeah. There's another view that, um, that was advocated by uh, one of our former professors at Dallas Seminary, I won't mention him by name, um, who emphasizes the word abides in verse 6. It says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And the idea is that John is simply referring to those who are abiding in Christ, and so long as they abide in Christ, they do not sin. But 
if they cease to abide in Christ, um, then they sin. But of course, ceasing to abide in Christ is itself a sin. So it's really seems to me inherently contradictory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how how can you say that um, as long as you abide in Christ, you'll never sin? But then if you choose not to abide in Christ, well, that itself is a sin. Mm-hmm. So you've just said the person who can't sin suddenly has already somehow committed a sin. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think. A reference to the abiding there helps. Furthermore, in verse 9, this is important to note. Um, He says, no one born of God, now again, the ESV renders this, makes a practice of sin. But the key here is the reason that he gives for this assertion. The reason is because God's seed abides in him and he can't sin because he has been born of God. So notice, for those who say, oh, the reason why you don't sin is because you're abiding in him. That's not what verse 9 says. Verse 9 traces it not to abiding, but to the new birth. Hmm. He says, it's because you've been born of God. Yeah. And God's yeah. seed abides in you that accounts for this sinlessness in, in some sense of the term. You've uh, read it from a different translation. I read it from one of the ones that kind of kept with uh, more the word for word uh, instead of trying to interpret some of the stuff. Uh, which could be legitimate. Uh, whenever we talk about this, I'm, ESV says no one three six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's helpful a little bit. <laughs> that takes away a little bit of the sting. NIV keeps on sinning. Uh, Net Bible. Everyone who resides in him does not sin. Keeps it just in the in the sin. Same thing with the New American Standard. No one who abides in him sins. Uh, New RSV. No one who abides in him sins. Um, in New Living Translation, anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. Now, changes it around a little bit. Now, here, here's the point. Uh, we have added this qualification to both 6 and 9 mm-hmm. because of the tense of the verb, right? right? We need to explain that to our listeners. Okay. Yeah, and because some people might be just thinking, why, why, why don't they just say sin? Like, why are all these English translators translating it so mm-hmm. differently? And it's because Greek is a more robust language than English is. That in one word, you can say more with the way that you write that word than you can in English. And... This is a controversial point, yeah. Uh, and none of us are professional Greek grammarians, although we do read Greek. And um, you know, I, I, I read Dan Wallace on this particular point, and he he point, argues that he believes that many have pressed the the present tense here beyond its uh, legitimate boundaries. Nevertheless, many many commentators, I would say, in fact, the majority of evangelical commentators embrace this idea. And the idea is based on the fact that in verse 6, when it says, no one who abides in him sins, that the verb sins is in the present tense in the Greek text. And then again in verse 9, no one born of God um, makes a pra- uh, or sins, again, present tense in the original text, for God's seed abides in him and he is not able to sin, present tense infinitive. Now, again, for the sake of our listeners, the the significance of this is that on occasion in the New Testament, when the present tense is used, it emphasizes the notion of ongoing, habitual practice, not, uh, not a singular event, not a momentary, isolated act, 
but what we might call a propensity that manifests itself over time. That's where the ESV justifies this kind of translation. It renders it, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. When in the original text, it's literally, as you pointed out, Michael, it's no one who abides in him sins. But they say, well, yeah, but because it's present tense, it's not a reference to, in a sense, a snapshot moment of his life, but it's kind of a moving picture. It's not a singular event because we all know we commit acts of sin on singular occasions. But what he's emphasizing is that the habitual disposition, the practice, the overall orientation of a Christian's life cannot be one of unrepentant sin. Now, the response to that is you're pressing the present tense beyond uh, Mm -hmm. the boundaries of what is appropriate. You just can't ground your interpretation in a tense of uh, of these Greek verbs or in verse 9 of the Greek infinitive. Others say, well, and and again, I'm, I'm arguing both sides here. Others would say, we agree. Not in every case in the New Testament where you find a present tense verb is it necessarily emphasizing ongoing continuous action. Mm-hmm. But it does in some instances, and maybe this is one of them. And that's why the ESV renders it here, practices sin. Because actually in verse 9 it says, no one who does sin. Hmm. It's not just sin, but it's actually got another verb there. And so the idea, and this is John Stott's view. And John Stott's probably the the most well-known and widely used commentary on 1 John. He emphasizes this notion strongly, that it's talking about habitual lifetime orientation uh, and practice, habit, as it were, rather than singular acts of transgression. Let me respond to that um, in a a different way, maybe something unexpected here. Um, I don't think that solves anything from the problem standpoint, okay? Let's say a very practical problem. Okay, it helps a little bit, you know, because we're all sitting here saying, "Hey, yeah, I, I've sinned, and I'm in trouble." If it's if it's a uh, if that was put in the aorist tense, you know, a one time act, big time trouble. You put it in the pre- present progressive, and you say, "Keeps on sinning or practices sin." Okay, I'm excited for a moment because, hey, I just became a Christian and I was able to give up lots of stuff, you know. Um, but you're, you're maybe you're 20 or 30 years down in the Christian life and you're beat up a little bit and, and you're still struggling and you're saying, man, why can't I get rid of this? And I talk to people all the time. I'm in the same boat. Why can't I get rid of these things in my life that have been with me for so long? The, these, these, this pride issue, this, this anger issue, this, this inability to be self-sacrificing in my marriage consistently, this inability to quit being selfish in, in, in this area or that area, all of a sudden, don't we have just about every Christian practicing sin? Yeah, I mean, and wouldn't it be the unpardonable sin is a sin that you can never get past? Well, let me respond to that, because I think, Michael, in the way you just portrayed that, which is very accurate, um, you, you revealed something important. You said that here's a person who is bothered by the fact that they have a sin, an addictive behavior pattern that from which they don't seem to break free. And that's the key. They're bothered by it. In other words, they, they experience conviction. Even though maybe over a period of years, they find themselves falling repeatedly in a cycle of sin and confession and repentance and then sin and confession and repentance 
at least there's confession and repentance. Mm. And that's the point of this interpretation. This interpretation is not saying that a Christian cannot commit sin even in a cyclical pattern or in an addictive manner, but they will be miserable because of it. They will feel conviction. They will hate the fact that they continually fall. They will be conscious uh, and aware of the reality of this problem. They will cry out to God for help. That's different from a person who so gives himself or herself over to a sinful and addictive pattern of life that they don't care. They just say, oh, yeah, I, I, I did it. And what difference does it make? It doesn't matter. I feel no remorse. I feel no pangs of conscience. But this view would argue that a somebody who's born again, using the language of 1 John, in whom the seed of God, the power, the nature of God, the Holy Spirit resides, although we will sin, we'll hate it. Um, we will not be indifferent and callous to it. It will make us miserable, and thus uh, there's a difference between somebody who sins habitually and doesn't care, and in fact might even take pride in it and seek to defend it, as over against somebody who has a habitual sin in his, his or her life, but really hates it and is broken and is grieved and realizes this is an offense against God. So there is a difference between those two. Yeah, well, and I think because the believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God, who is convicting the world of sin, and who is uh, is is hopefully working in our lives to change us, to make us look more like Christ, but then also the whole sinless nature of everything is that we are, uh, our lives are hopefully centered on the sinless one, that our lives are centered on Christ, and so hopefully we see our sin more clearly and more brightly and more in our face uh, when we are, when we have the Savior than when we don't as well. I mean, if, if you have a best friend who never, ever, ever sins, that's going to make your sin look bigger because it's going to be more noticeable, but if you're always hanging out with someone who sins all the time like you do, you're never going to really notice it because you guys are just doing what you do and there's going to be no um, it's not going to seem out of the ordinary or seem strange and so I think uh, yeah I I think so too I I think that our sin is only magnified the closer we get to God which should mean that we want it to be no more there is another interpretive option um, that I think we need to point out and it's one to which I am somewhat drawn I, I still like the idea that the present tense here does bear some unique significance. It's it, and that's a permissible view. It's not required. Um, uh, grammarians obviously warn us against pressing it beyond uh, uh, the limits that we should. But the other option is is that the sin which a believer does not and cannot commit, according to verses three and six is specifically the sin that leads to death in 1 John 5.16. Over in 1 John 5.16, Michael, that you were about to quote earlier, says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, that is another problem passage all in in itself, but uh, the, the, the point... made is this in the overall context of first john he identifies two fundamental sins 
that preclude the possibility that you could be a believer. One is denial of Jesus as the incarnate Christ. He makes that clear in 1 John 2. Whoever denies that that Jesus is God come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. If you deny that Christ is God come in the flesh, you're of the spirit of Antichrist. And then there's also the sin of hating the brethren that he talks about all through 1 John. And so the argument is that in 1 John 5, 16, sin that leads to eternal death is either or both hating the brethren and denying that Jesus is God come in the flesh, denying the incarnation. And so the argument is that maybe in 1 John 3, he's writing in anticipation of what he's going to say in chapter 5. And he's simply saying that the true born-again believer cannot commit sin, namely the sin of hating the brethren or of denying the incarnation of Christ. And so it's a very specific sin, not just sin in general. It's not, uh, when he says this in 1 John 3, he's not saying uh, if you ever commit the sin of looking at pornography or if you ever commit the sin of lying to a friend or if you ever commit the sin of shoplifting you know, when you're youth, that means you can't be a Christian. But rather, he's specifically focusing on the sins that he's talking about in the letter, namely of hating the brethren, denying that the incarnation of Christ. So maybe those specifically are the sins that he has in view in 1 John 3. And if that's the case, the problem is resolved because he wouldn't be denying that Christians can in fact sin. He's simply saying that a Christian can't commit those two sins. I talked to... Uh... Uh, Dr. Yondervat about this. That, uh, he's uh, one of the leading Johannine scholars, John scholars. That uh, that is part of the uh, uh, the Society of Biblical Literature and editor for that, and especially in those areas. But uh, talked to him about this about two weeks ago, um, and asked him his view. And he said the first thing you got to say is chapter one qualifies everything else. And so chapter 1 has already been established to where there is a sense in which even progressive sin is acknowledged. Where he says, if we say we have no sin, having sin is the idea of possessing it. You know, it's not, it's not, if we say we had no sin, past tense, you know, before we were Christian. um, It doesn't say if we uh, say that we have no occasional sin, it's just have no sin and there's kind of this absolute sense in which this is already stated we confess our sins and the idea is we are taking care of the problem that was just introduced we are continually confessing our sins so god john has already created a situation to where there is progressive sin and if you say you don't have any progressive sin then you're a liar and let's add to that first john 2 2 um no excuse me first john 2 1 but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So yeah. John is anticipating that Christians will sin, but he says, hey, don't worry. Uh, Jesus stands at the right hand. He's made propitiation for our sins. So he's affirming it even more clearly in 1 John 2, 1. Well, then I think in, in 1 John 5, he reiterates that again in, in verse 11. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, not momentary life based on progressive sin, but God gave us eternal life, and this is life in his Son. Whoever and He simplifies it. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
And I think he then he goes on verse 13. So imagine coming through chapter 3 being a little shaky, saying, oh, you know, I, I hope that I still have, have life. I still hope that I'm, I'm with God even though I sin." He's saying, hey, let me tell you why I'm writing this thing. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I, I think as well, he's, he's coming and saying, don't, don't sin. You know, hopefully, uh, I like the saying, it's a little cliche, but I like the saying of that Christians are not sinless, but we should sin less. And I, I like that idea. I, I like that. So, so stay with it. Don't don't uh, dive in deeper into your sin because you are following the sinless one. So you should sin less. But know that eternal eternal life is not given out based on your merit or based on your uh, ability to sin or not sin. Eternal life is given out based on those who are in the Son. Period. We've got a qualification then. I mean, qualification very much believing. Uh, we are sinning. Confess our sins. So it, within the context of that qualification, another thing comes into being. John's writing style. John is very definite and absolute. Light, dark, you know, uh, uh, esoteric in a lot of the ways he speaks, but it's absolute. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't see middle ground the way we want him to. It doesn't make him wrong. It just makes his writing style and his thinking style different. And so whenever he comes to issues like this, he speaks more in absolutes. Already having qualified this, this is what Yonderbot told me, already having qualified this at the beginning, now we come to this statement where no one sins, and you've got this kind of absolute idea that's qualified by, but everybody does sin, but here's the idea. Now we have what you said earlier, and I think people were probably raising red flags when you were saying it. Nobody sins in a way that they're comfortable Nobody sins in a way that they progressively do not have repentance. And people are saying, no, it's not written in there. It's not, you, I don't see that. Uh, you, you're adding your theology from somewhere else. But from Yondervat's perspective, it does. It's implied in here because of this, this whole idea that has been set up and the whole idea of John's black and white language that he uses. Therefore, he can throw this in here. That's the idea. It's just a lifestyle implied of comfortable sin that you are abiding in the sin you are loving the sin you are you are progressively unrepentant you are not qualified by those things what we talked about earlier of uh, forgiveness asking for forgiveness mm. so it's hard so so the bottom line as best i can tell is it seems like there are two possible explanations here both of which i think can be defended well um, the appeal to the present tense and the implications we've said that this is descri- this is saying that a Christian can't live in habitual, ongoing, unrepentant uh, sin as a lifestyle, as an as a characteristic feature of their lives, but that they um, that they will feel conviction and repentance, and they will come back and seek uh, um, the, the forgiveness of the Father. Or it's referring specifically to the sin unto death from chapter 5, verse 16, and therefore he has in mind a very specific transgression when he says that a Christian cannot commit it. Hmm. Uh, key point, I guess. Um, we're not trying to make anybody comfortable in their sin. I don't want to be comfortable in my sin. But at the same time, folks, you guys listen to this. You are sinners. First John chapter 1, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Okay, Nobody here wants to be a liar. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. Um, 
it is a it is a, a we we could talk about this some other time but it is this idea that we have an advocate advocate we have a place to go and we have our sins covered um that's the good news I want to leave here with with good news for people who get stressed out for these types of things these types of passages of scripture and um yes we all do practice sin in a way that is uh, difficult on us. It hurts our nature, hurts our new nature. But uh, we have an advocate with the Father. And we have the power that we can cling to our Savior and say, please rip this out of my life. I hate it, and I know that you are a present help, and I want your yoke because in it I will have freedom for my soul. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Again, one thing, we don't mention this very much, Tim, but uh, this is part of Reclaiming the Iron Ministries, Credo House Ministries, and we are supported by you guys. That's the primary way we get support. Lattes don't make that much money. Yeah. <laughs> Do they? They bring in a decent amount, but most coffee shops don't have people like us on staff. Yeah. 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 So they pay some of the bills, but not very that much. We got mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that we do here. So uh, think about that you know, as you uh, uh, think about uh, donations and gifts and, and uh, giving to other ministries besides your church. This is not something we want to do in place of your church. Keep on giving to your church. But if you have uh, uh, the ability to uh, help us out here, we are a 501c3 ministry. And we've got a huge vision that if you want to contact us through our email or whatever, we can let you know. We're really excited about the things the Lord's laid on our hearts. And, uh, you know, if you are considering it, please contact us. And we would be more than happy just to share with uh, how we feel like the Lord has called us in a unique way to make a contribution and help change the world for his glory. Uh, For Tim and Sam, thank you guys for being here. This is Michael, and we're signing off until next week. And you'll have to wait till then to find out what we're going to be covering. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.